Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of SciSection. I'm Allison and today I'm joined by astronomer and director of the iconic Griffith Observatory, Dr. Ed Krupp. So thank you for coming, Dr. Krupp. Uh, pleasure and thanks for the invitation. Of course, yeah. So I guess just to start off the interview really broadly, I wanted to ask, how did you get into the field of astronomy and maybe what have been some highlights in your career path? I don't know about highlights, but it's pretty easy to identify going into astronomy. Um, the, um, the fact is that at the time that I became an astronomer, uh, I know for a fact that most astronomers wound up becoming astronomers in very similar ways. And the reason I know this is that I was at an American Astronomical Society meeting. Uh, this would have been in the late 1960s, early 70s. And at that meeting, at that time, uh, you could in fact expect that most of the professional astronomers in the US, North America, it included Mexico and Canada as well, uh, would attend. Not everybody, but almost. And there was a speaker at that meeting, and for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. I, I wish I'd taken better notes. Uh, but that, that speaker, in getting ready to uh, make uh, his presentation to this assembled group of professional astronomers, asked them, how many of you decided to become an astronomer as a young child. And nearly every hand in the room, and that's about between two and 3,000 people, every hand in the room went up. And, and then he asked, how many of you decided to become an astronomer because of one, uh, a look through a telescope, uh, two, a book, or three, a visit to a planetarium? And once again, uh, just about every hand in the room went up. I think it would be different today. Astronomy has evolved considerably, but the fact is that certainly applied to me back then. Uh, I had uh, decided when I was a kid that I was gonna be an astronomer. I know when it was, I was eight years old and I know what did it, it was a book. Do you remember what the book was about? <laughs> I sure do. And that's a, that's a kind of a bizarre tale in itself. Um, the book was called Sky High. Uh, and the author was, uh, I presume, a woman named Mera, and that was about it. And there was no publishing information whatsoever uh, to help you trace it. Now, the reason I say that is because, in fact, I lost the book, so I, I didn't even have the ability to trace it. I lost it as a kid. It was one of these spiral books, really one of the early sort of pop-up books. Not very elaborate, but it did pop up in a couple of places. And it was a very bizarre collection of adventures in the sky of this kid, uh, Terry. Uh, and when he went off into the solar system, he wound up visiting the planets of the solar system, but the planets of the solar system for one reason or another uh, were inhabited by the classical God associated with that planet. So, so you've got this kid, he's doing mythology and he's doing astronomy in the same book. Well, again, of course I lost the book as a kid it haunted me for years. I started fishing around for it, particularly after I began uh, writing books and, or having some kind of public presence with Griffith Observatory. So every once in a while I'd throw a line out, kind of talking about this book, just to see if anybody would um, you know, come in on it. Well, decades went by you know, and, and nothing happened. And then uh, finally I got a, a message. Uh, it was a letter, this was pre-email days uh, and the letter said, I think I have your book. 
and I, oh, and you know, my heart sank uh, because I was no longer sure the book was as good as I thought it was. You, you know, you, 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 there you'd have your whole life on the line for the sake of a book that was really an utter failure uh, with the perspective of, of age and maturity. Um, so uh, I kind of was just lackadaisical and I didn't really respond uh, to the woman who had written to me. And then some months went by and I wrote back uh, and, and didn't get anywhere. And then I lost the address. And so I, you know, I just forgot about it. But in fact, after about a year, woman got back to me with another letter and said, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got the book, I'm going to be uh, in Los Angeles. I can, I can bring it up to you, you can have a look at it. Uh, so she did, in fact, she came to the observatory and the, here's this book in an envelope. You know, I, I just am seeing this envelope and it may seem silly, uh, but I was, I was really kind of concerned. Uh, and uh, I, um, I, I received the envelope from her, pulled the book out. As soon as I saw it, I knew it was the book that had changed my life. Uh, and as soon as I turned a page, I knew this book was as good as I remembered it was. I was thrilled. Uh, so I put the book away. Uh, and, I, and, and of course, the lady knew she had a pigeon. Uh, yeah, you know, she uh, uh, was waiting for me to ask if I would buy it. Uh, and of course, I wanted to. And, uh, and she charged a pretty penny for it. Uh, although you can, you can find copies still today on, on the interweb. Uh, <laughs> there was no uh, internet back then. And so uh, it, it's not that hard to come across a copy here or there. Uh, but I squirreled the thing away because my 50th birthday was coming up. And uh, the, uh, the birthday, I, I have no use for the birthday parties, but I wrapped it up as a present and, and a lot of family members were around. And as the party proceeded, um, I, I wound up and got the package and brought it out. And I said, oh, look, there's another present for me. And my wife at the time, uh, with whom I collaborated with uh, on, uh, books on, for children, illustrated children's books. She was the illustrator and she guessed in her head and her heart uh, what was in this package. And she was absolutely chagrined. She was worried I would never do another children's book now that I'd found this one. My mother who was at the party certainly knew about the book. She guessed it was the book and her attitude was this is just great. Well, the fact is it was great. Uh, I still have the book, I love it. And I did write some more children's books, so all went well. That's such a fun story. I actually, I think um, when I was in kindergarten, so when I was about like six, I had a similar book. I don't remember what it was called, or I just know it was about the rain cycle. And after that, I was like, I am gonna study science. For some reason, I read that book inside and out. And it was just one of those things you read when you're little that kind of changed the course of your life. It's really cool. Uh, it, it is, in fact, uh, how, uh, an indication of how powerful uh, the effects of other people doing deliberate things like that wind up propelling us all forward. And I, I remain ever grateful for, for the book. I even I had a column for Sky and Telescope magazine on astronomy and culture. I wrote month after month, every month for 15 years. And of course, one of those uh, monthly columns I dedicated to this book. Never heard from the author. Uh, nothing like that, of course, uh, but uh, I still have the copy. That's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Um, oh yeah, and then to kind of move on from that, 
uh, I mentioned in the intro that you are a director of Griffith Observatory, and we have some listeners who might be from other countries all over the world. So for those who don't know, Griffith Observatory is this really iconic landmark in Los Angeles. I personally love going with my family. It's, you get to look in the telescope. I love being able to see the Los Angeles skyline. But what would you say has been your most rewarding part in your position of director? The, the uh... <laughs> I, I don't know about rewarding in terms of work effort uh, that's gone in and then uh, being able to um, have something to show for the work. You know, the observatory uh, was suffering from success. I mean, it opened in 1935. It was the uh, third major planetarium uh, in the United States, in North America, uh, the first uh, west of the Mississippi and on the Pacific Rim. And it, it was not even um, a, just a planetarium. That goes to the whole history of this, this early movement in public science uh, that was, of course, taking place in other parts of the world as well as, as the US. Uh, but Griffith Observatory then was, was a pioneer very early and very distinctive from the others in that it was a public observatory, is a public observatory. Yes, it's got a planetarium. Uh, yes, it has exhibits but its primary function is to put people eyeball to the universe. So th the fact is uh, after uh, decades of, of high public use, uh, the, the place was getting terribly worn out and it took decades after, after that realization because my first memorandum about this was in 1978 where you're trying to prepare uh, the, uh, the management of the city of Los Angeles and the Department of Recreation and Parks, which owns and operates the observatory, trying to prepare them for what seemed to me significant expenditures at the time. Well, I had no idea how significant the expenditures would eventually be, uh, but we did manage to do a $93 million renovation and expansion of the observatory. We were in exile uh, while the observatory was closed uh, and making all of this happen for five years, but it reopened in, in 2006, late in the year 2006. And, and of course, um, it, it has remained, as you said, a, a landmark and an icon, not only of Los Angeles, but all, all over the world. The, the observatory, if, if you were to say something rewarding about it, I think it's just getting to be here. Uh, it, is, it is, you know, on the best piece of public observatory real estate on the planet. We're the hood ornament of Los Angeles. Everybody can see the place from the basin below. You get this vista of, of everywhere and you're at the connection between earth and sky. And it's not a research observatory, never intended to be so, but in fact, it transforms people's perspective on a daily basis, minute by minute, as, as you know, as, as a visitor, just coming for the view, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. uh, so getting to be a part of, of something that's operated like that now, uh, practically 86 years uh, is, is clearly a delight. That's so wonderful. I totally understand. I think I used to volunteer at a small museum while I was in high school, but I think one of the coolest things about it was you get to see everyone else gain this interest in something that you're so passionate about. And it's just really nice being able to pass on something you are so fascinated in and sharing that with others. So I feel like you might have a similar experience with the observatory. No, no question. And, and of course, our enthusiasm winds up being propelled uh, truly by the numbers. You know, it is the most visited public observatory on the planet. And the, the Zeiss 
12-inch refracting telescope. Now, for some listeners, uh, they, they may not necessarily know one telescope from another and all that, but this, this Zeiss 12-inch refractor, this is not the biggest telescope on the planet, for gosh sakes. It's got a 12-inch lens, which is unusual, and it's a very historic <laughs> instrument, but a bit old-fashioned in its way. It's not the kind of telescope uh, that you would use for modern research at all. And even back in the 1930s, uh, telescopes and observatories for research were evolving considerably. But in fact, that Zeiss 12-inch telescope it has, has a charm that I think is unmatched anywhere else in the world. More people have looked through that telescope than any other telescope on the planet. More people have seen the live face of the sun on our solar telescope than anywhere else on, in the world. So those kinds of opportunities uh, to connect people's eyeballs to the universe is, is, is just a daily pleasure. Yeah, my sister, that the Zeiss telescope was her favorite thing. It took us years to be able to get into the line to go see it. And we finally did, I think, probably a year or two ago. And she was so excited. She has a ton of pictures. Just being able to look through that telescope was probably one of the highlights of her year, I, I'd say. Uh, d delighted to hear that. Of course, we put more telescopes out on the lawn too. As, as you know, as a veteran, sometimes you have to wait a very long time in that <laughs> line to, to get to the eyepiece. Uh, uh, but but it, it, it's sort of like, uh, you know, waiting for a ride at Disneyland. You just do it until you're there. So there you go. Mm -hmm. It's worth it. It's worth <laughs> so when we were doing our correspondence through email before this interview, I was really excited every time you your email signatures. I think the first one was past solstice and headed for perihelion. And I don't know why, but that really just made my day. <laughs> it was just such a unique email signature about, and it really puts into perspective like where we are in time and space and like our place kind of. So I guess I just want to ask what's something fascinating happening in the skies today? You know, the, uh, the funny thing about astronomy uh, is that there's always something. It's like from the old Saturday Night Live show uh, with Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana. There's always something uh, with the universe. And of course, we've just passed uh, a, a, a remarkable and highly visible and public event, this great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And here the observatory is closed because of COVID-19 and not ready to, you know, closed since March 13th of 2020. And, and not likely to open soon. Uh, I think we're going to have to see considerable amount of evolution in, in everyone's um, situation before that. Mm -hmm. But we were able to put that event online uh, with live telescopic imagery. We started with the winter solstice sunset uh, out on the lower west terrace with the sun lining up with the line that's inscribed for sunset. Uh, on winter solstice there. We also have it for summer in the equinoxes. And, and then just kept the program going live, uh, at, live streamed uh, on the internet for people to get a chance to see it for, for themselves, even though the observatory uh, was completely closed. And in fact, uh, as is typical for our live stream events, the audience that, that responded to that was, was huge. We had uh, 2.28 million views uh, by the time that Jupiter and Saturn actually set. Uh, so the, the, that was, you know, what, last month or so, and you say, well, what have you done for me lately? Well, the, the universe has always got stuff cooked up, and that includes planet Earth and the people on it. And the people on planet Earth are landing on Mars again uh, in February. And uh, our next, uh, I, I think, 
major effort to try to connect with people online will be to do some programming in conjunction uh, with that landing that we hope is successful. Uh, as uh, you probably know, and many people do, uh, getting to Mars is not easy. Uh, and it, it is a way, way more impressive ride than any amusement park as that lander comes down uh, at going through uh, what JPL called the uh, seven minutes of terror. Uh, so, the, and, it, and it is terrifying, uh, but uh, nonetheless, a great triumph of human spirit. Uh, when, when you see that happen. And so that's where our next focus is, uh, as far as uh, whatever it is that the sky is doing. Oh, that's great. You totally anticipated one of my um, other questions. I was going to ask how people can um, stay connected and learn, continue their curiosity even during COVID-19. But I think that's a really great way, being able to watch the presentations even from home. It actually, it's even more accessible than ever. Yeah, you know, the observatory has been trying to respond to what really is a, a major crisis. I mean, educationally for people, we would do a morning school program for school children in the Southern California area, uh, a live program where the kids would come up here and, and take advantage. They would get a chance to see planetarium operation. Let's make a comet demonstration in the Leonard Nimoy Event Horizon Theater, uh, see actual telescope working, and then also some of the exhibits. And of course, all of that just stopped. And we are right now in the middle, uh, and I think about uh, ready to go live, uh, it'll happen next month, with uh, an online live school program uh, for school kids, not only here in, in Southern California, that's where we'll start, but if in fact at all is successful, uh, kids from all over the, the country may be able to pick up on it as, as time goes on. Uh, but the same thing applies to any of these special events, as you said. And I think if people want to know, okay, what can they do with Griffith Observatory right now? I'm afraid the main thing is you just got to go to the website. Uh, it, that's uh, griffithobservatory.org. Uh, but there, in fact, uh, you'll be able to find out what it is that's happening and certainly what our online presentations uh, are going to be. Wow. Okay, definitely. So for all our listeners, that's definitely a resource to check out. Um, so I think right before we finish our interview, I think the last thing I might ask is, do you have any advice for um, a lot of our listeners who are students, like as they go through their learning and their career, like their I guess they're going after their careers right now, and it could be a very tumultuous time for many students. So do you have any pieces of advice you'd like to share? Well, again, I wouldn't count myself as a person who has lots of good advice, particularly for, uh, for people who are embarking, but I do think that, that it is always important to be looking for the things that you love and, and make sure that that is how you spend your life. That, that doesn't mean it has to be glamorous, it doesn't have to be romantic, but you do have to love it. And, and then at the, the, the same time that uh, you're doing that, I think you should always be ready for surprises, for the unexpected. They certainly occurred to me. I never imagined I would be working at Griffith Observatory. It's the farthest thing from, from my mind, and I had no interest in doing it. And, and so you do have to be prepared for surprises like that. And, and then as, uh, as that kind of, of, of thing continues, uh, you just have to always in your thinking and in your planning, this is probably the most practical advice I can give anybody, is when you start looking at a problem, think of it 
as something that needs to be approached very systematically and figure out the first principles. What's important about this? Why do I care? Why should anybody else care? You have to be able to answer those questions in order to be able to do all of the hard work that's going to follow. Wow. That's a really great way um, to wrap up this episode, actually. So thank you, Dr. Cup, so much for joining me. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks a lot, Allison.